Sunday lessons on principles. And we've covered some, we're in fact, we're beginning to cover uh, some doctrinal issues. And we're going to talk this morning about the principle of the cross. And, of course, I love to preach the cross. I love the cross. And sometimes we don't understand the cross. Um, but then next week we're going to be talking about repentance, the principle of repentance. Brother Davis will be having that. And uh, we'll be covering these various principles. But we're going to start uh, here this morning, 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 31. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 31. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God... The world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. All these things that you see a preacher do up here, and he looks crazy, and sometimes he feels crazy. You know, he kicks his leg out, he stomps, he jumps off the platform, you know, he spits everywhere. That's the foolishness of preaching. That's not foolish preaching. It's the foolishness of preaching. There is a difference. And there's a, an anointing that comes with that. It doesn't matter how far I can spit from here back there. Okay, it doesn't matter. There's people that can still have that anointing and be different. You know, they still have that anointing. Uh, some of us, as we get older, we don't climb on the pews as much as we did when we were younger. And some of us, even though we're older, we're heavier, and we're afraid what that pew might do if we step on it. So we got to be careful. That's the <laughs> foolishness of preaching. Okay. Uh, where was I? Foolishness of preaching. There we go. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews, a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, Greeks, Christ the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, and not many mighty not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring naught to things that are. One of my favorite, I told you I've got many favorite scriptures. Here is number 12 in the list that never seems to get any smaller that no flesh should glory in his presence. I am determined and will always be determined that when the apostolic church, whatever UPC, whatever that preaches the truth, determines not to allow flesh to glory in God's presence, we will have the end time revival that God has ordained. That is exactly what will happen. It's not a matter about who's the best preacher. It's not a matter about who's the best singer, who is better at anything. When we learn the humility that was taught very well, I think it was last Sunday, wasn't it? Sunday morning? Yeah, last Sunday morning. Uh, then we learn that. Then we're going to find ourselves in a place that we need to be. And these things come not but by prayer and fasting. That's why we need to continue to pray and fast, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made into us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory 
in the Lord. You may be seated in Jesus' name. Modern culture knows very, very, very little about the significance of, of the cross. Very little. To many people, it's just an emblem or a piece of religious jewelry on a chain that is worn around the neck or a pin to be worn in the lapel or possibly an emblem or a bumper sticker or a Bible cover. But how many people know the significance of the symbol of the cross? Long before it occurred to anyone to use a cross as an emblem or a piece of jewelry, it represented the idea an idea of suffering and sacrifice. That's what the cross is all about. The cross was the supreme seminal event of all history. And the one sacrifice that changed everything for mankind, providing the means of human redemption. Jesus Christ suffered and died that we might be saved from the prison of sin that has held us captive. I don't know about you, but I still remember being captive. I still remember the bars that Satan had built around me. And I still remember the night that all of that was torn down. And I still remember how free that I felt. In fact, I still feel that same amount of freedom that I felt when God tore that all down when I received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. That is what the cross should mean to every one of us. It's a matter of a sacrifice that the bars could be broken down, that I can have liberty, that I can have freedom, that I can know the power of God in all, all of its purity and wonder. Oh, aren't you glad that you were set free one day? And whom the Son has set free is free indeed. Give him a hand clap of adoration. You know, a piece of, of poly silver gold actually never contained the true significance of the cross. The cross is holy, it is personal, it's emotional to every believer. It was Jesus Christ dying in our place. It should have been us, but he chose to die that we might live. And we would consider Christ giving his all. How can we even think of giving less? How can we even think of giving one bit less if he gave everything? He died that we might live, and how can we then live unto ourselves in a selfish vacuum? And that's what so many people today live in, a selfish, a selfish vacuum. The cross calls true believers to a lifestyle of sacrifice, even suffering if necessary to fulfill his purpose on earth. So this comes down to this. Don't give me a piece of jewelry. You give me a life of selflessness and sacrifice. I'm sorry, and I, I don't need to apologize for this, but I'm saying this. It does not mean a thing if you're a Christian. You can have a wooden cross hanging around your neck that can go to your knees, or you can have a, 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 a nice little solid gold one worth a fortune, but that doesn't mean anything, and that certainly doesn't mean you're a Christian. It's a sacrifice, it's a suffering, it's a selflessness that means that you're a true Christian. So what does the cross of Jesus Christ mean to us? On the day that Jesus suffered and died on Golgotha, the cross meant a great deal to some, but very little to others. For the jeering multitudes stirred to a frenzy by the religious leaders, it was a symbol of sadistic 
victory. To the callous soldiers of the Roman governor, it was nothing more than just one more execution. And to the 11 disciples that remained after Judas killed himself, the cross spelled the collapse of all their hopes and all their dreams. For Mary, the mother of Jesus, it became the piercing sword that cut through the heart, according to Luke 2.35. So what does the cross of the Lord mean to us? There are probably as many opinions today about the cross as there ever have been, and, and perhaps even more than, than back in the day that Jesus died on the cross. Some deny the crucifixion even took place. They don't even want to acknowledge it, while others believe it was totally unnecessary. There are the skeptics who think that sin is a delusion and that redemption is a fallacy. There, there are certain historians who believe that to, this took place was, or what took place was a passing event less important in their minds than the birth of Julius Caesar or the fall of the Roman Empire. And perhaps the greatest question that one should ask, what did the cross mean to God himself? That's, that's it. it doesn't matter what my opinion is. It doesn't matter what historian's opinion is. What does the cross mean to God? What does it mean? What does the death of the Son of God signify to the Father? And certainly the blood of Jesus Christ spoke better things than that of Abel, according to Hebrews 12, 24. For to express the ultimate will of God, Jesus Christ died and provided redemption for all mankind. I can never get over this, folks. I, I, you know, no matter what, I realize what the cross purchased. It purchased the gospel message, the death, burial, and resurrection. Because Jesus died, he was buried, and he was resurrected. And we have to identify with that. And I'm going to come to that. But but. It, it all stems back to this. Everything that we have today and how we enter into this wonderful covenant with Jesus Christ is, goes back to the cross. So I look to the cross. I look to it every day, and I cannot for the life of me understand why. God did what he did, and no matter how much, I, I know, I, you can give me the answers. It's all good. You can say, he loved us so much. I understand that. I understand. It's just hard for the human mind to comprehend the kind of love that God had for us, that he would become a man and suffer and die. One of the cruelest, come on, one of the cruelest ways of dying. The crucifixion was nothing nice about it. It wasn't a quick bullet to the head. It wasn't a lethal injection. It wasn't an electric chair. It was something that lasted and lasted and lasted, and he did it because he loved us. How can I comprehend that? Let's look again what took place on Golgotha. Let's, let's look past what men with evil hearts were doing past the betrayal of Judas and, and the unjust trial of Jesus Christ and his terrible scourging by the Romans and even the actual nailing of Jesus to the cross. Let us try to see what God saw. Surely what he saw was a lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world according to 1 Peter 1, 19 and Revelations 13 and 8. But let, let, let's hear, let's, let's hear with me if you would our, our Lord's dying cry, it is finished. And realize with the, with the Almighty that an awesome price was paid for our atonement. Let's go past that it is finished i got a message i'm working on right now famous last words and that's one of the most famous it is finished in first corinthians 1 18 paul revealed the preaching of a cross is foolishness to an individual who continues to reject the message of calvary and without it he will perish now the amplified bible which i you know everybody knows i enjoy the amplified bible for those of you that are purists, you just have to forgive me my little fallacy. I like the Amplified. But it translates 
the beginning of this verse, and it goes this way. The Amplified says, For the story and the message of the cross is sheer absurdity and folly to those who are perishing and on their way to perdition. I like the way it says that. Perdition is hell. So let's just put it in little better terms. For those who are going to hell, this is foolish. That's what it says. <sighs> Paul wrote later, he said, but if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. 2 Corinthians 4.3. The word foolishness in 1 Corinthians 1.18 suggests that people who reject the cross are actually scorning the plan of God. They despise that which seems impossible to the natural mind. Now, they reason, how could anyone, how could anyone claim what Christ claimed when Jesus couldn't even save himself? Even the thief on the cross, if thou be the Son of God, save yourself. So people in their mind, if, if Jesus truly is a resurrection and the life, why didn't he save himself? That's, what that's their argument. And, you know, the soldiers, they, they hurled accusations. And, and again, the, the thief hurled accusations at him. The instrument of death became the source of life for the believer. The wooden cross by itself could not save us. It doesn't matter how many crosses you can wear. You can wear them in your ears, wear them in your nose, you can wear them on your belly, you can get a tattoo on your back. That doesn't save you. It does not save you. It doesn't mean anything. However, it was the sinless lamb of God's death on the cross that purchased our salvation. It was his innocent blood that made atonement for sinners possible. Now, you think about what I'm about to say, and I've said this before, and many of you will pick up on it. I was talking about jewelry one time, and I made this statement for people who like to wear crosses somehow to identify. What if Jesus was executed with a gun? Would we wear a gun around our neck? Or what if they hung him? We put a noose around our neck? I just want you to think, that's all. You know, think about it. It's what happened on the cross that matters. It's what's in here that identifies with what happened on that cross. It's the feeling that he died this horrible death because of me. Every time I even think about it, it's hard to keep from breaking down because you just, I just think of that, how much he loved and what he went through. What Paul meant by the cross was the preaching of the cross in 1 Corinthians 1.18. That's what he was talking about. He recognized the cross as the most powerful message of all. The message of the cross is a truth that will transform the lives of all who are willing to humble their hearts before God. The Corinthians had prided themselves in their philosophies and in their knowledge, but Paul came to them with neither clever speech nor worldly wisdom, but the power of God. He said, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. He said, that is what I need to know that's all in him crucified it wasn't a matter of the instrument it was a matter of what happened on the instrument the idea of the suffering messiah offended the jews ah, jews they were looking for the messiah to come in and to take over all israel to restore the government back to the jewish people they were looking for a mighty conqueror they had they had hope for a restoration they they were looking for that how could they believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God? They, they reasoned when instead of conquering, he himself was conquered. 
Do you realize how they're looking and the thinking? And again, it's the natural mind that messes so many people up. He's the conqueror, but yet he was conquered. It's because we can't get past the idea of a physical death. It's because we can't realize no matter what you go through in this life, and you hear every one of you hear me, this, no matter what you're enduring right now, no matter how hard life is for you, this is nothing. This is this little time when we can just conquer some of these, these little, uh, little indiscretions, if you would, little problems with other people. When we can conquer this and realize that real life is still in front of us, that what we're going through right now is not a real life. This is just a preparation point, a time for me to get everything right and to endure what I have to endure, whatever suffering and sacrifice that is necessary, that I can spend eternity with the one who gave me the opportunity to gain eternity. prophet wrote, we hid as it was our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not in Isaiah 53 and 3. Contemptuously, the Jews referred to Jesus as the man who was hanged. That's how they referred to him according to the epistles of St. Paul. And Arthur Stanley wrote this. He said, they stumble over what appeared to be weakness, but what appeared to them to be weakness was the real true power of God. That's what the stumbling block to the Jews. But let's look to the Greeks now. The Greeks thought it was nothing but foolishness. The gospel always opposes human pride and sinful behavior. And that's just a fact. When, again, we go back to that verse of Scripture, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Okay, no flesh. You, you, you see, that's where it goes completely contrary to the Greek way of thinking. It cannot, how can, you know, it's all about, and really in our way of thinking as a nation, it's all about American pride. I bought this, I'll just say this instrument. You know me, I play the guitar and horn, all these, this instrument that I bought. And uh, you know probably what it was. Right on the side of it, made in America. American pride. Got the, inst- the, the instructions on how to put this thing together. Made in America by parts it was made in Taiwan. <laughs> yeah, but that's how they, that's a new way. That, they, they take all the parts, put it together in America, and try it out, and it's made in America. That's our American pride. Huh? Imagine that. You think about this. You know, it, it, it's... If you, the Bible says, I believe it's in the book of Acts. I can't remember the chapter exactly. But it said that these were more noble than Thessalonica because they daily searched the scriptures to see whether these things be true or not. Now, I was looking at this yesterday and I thought, isn't this a case? You know, you get somebody who's got just a little bit of pull and they can make you believe about anything. But you need to read the fine print. You need to check to see whether these things be true or not. Read the fine print. This is too, this this prideful thing, you know, I'm right no matter what. I I I know I've got, I'm right according to the scripture. I know that I've got salvation correctly because I've looked at the fine print. But I also know that I'm not done yet. I know that I'm not made it to heaven yet. And I know that I keep studying and finding what other things to be true. I just don't take it for granted. And none of us should take this for granted. 
There was something great that happened 2,000 years ago that not a one of us should ever take for granted, nor allow our pride to stand in our way. The message of the cross counteracts worldly wisdom. So naturally, those who feel self-important reject it. And to the Greeks, largely ignorant of the Old Testament, the gospel message simply spoke of another one of the gods. To them, they just thought, this is another god. Now, Mars Hill, Paul went up to talk to the Greeks. He reasoned with the Greeks on Mars Hill. They had a statue up there of the unknown god. And, and, and Paul, being a wise man, said, well, let me just identify the unknown god to you. You know, some of us would probably not think that's the right way of acting, but some of us need to realize there's ways of doing things that not always are necessarily uh, what we consider kosher. That's a, that's a Jewish term anyway. So, so you know, we, Paul was wise enough to know, okay, rather than come in here and tear down, let's just identify. And if we get it identified and they start believing it, then we can start tearing down. Got that? That's the right way of doing things. But, you know, he, but the Greeks could only understand that this is one more God. And there were so many. Again, you can see this in Acts 17, 18 through 34. They had little or no understanding of the God of the Jews. And it was well known that the Epicureans and the Stoics, they actually followed philosophies that were evolutionary in their nature in as much not, you know, evolution, believing in evolution. So it was in their nature. Uh, and it was difficult for the Greeks to believe that Christians could have life through one who had died. The Greeks could not com comprehend this. Now, the Greeks could comprehend gods who came down and messed with human lives all the time and made you miserable. Stop and think about this. They could comprehend that. They could comprehend that gods who came down and impregnated women and had uh, demagogues. They could comprehend that, but they could not comprehend one who loved so much that he died for us. Contrary. Completely their way of thinking. So it just didn't fit. So it was difficult for them. One who died in the doctrine of the resurrected Jesus Christ was particularly hard for them to accept. Acts 17.32 says, And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked and others said, We will hear thee again of this matter. So it did touch some hearts. No matter what, folks, there's going to be some people that you bring this message to that they're, they're, going, to, they're going to accept it. There's going to be some, no matter what you do, are going to reject. Now, the cross was God's greatest gift to mankind. The grand purpose of the Lord's life was the, the, his death. He, he endured for our sins, the, the, the death that he endured for our sins. And Jesus knew his own destiny, knew what kind of suffering and death he would face. Evil men led Christ to the cross, but it was all in the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, according to Acts 2.23. It was all in the plan that God had, all of it. Every bit of the suffering, everything, it was all the predeterminate will of God. Already had been determined. That wonderful plan transcends human wisdom. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, God has declared, so are my ways higher than your ways. You ever, want, you ever had that happen to you? Just, you know, you're going through it, you're going through it. Many of you, if you've been living for God any length of time, uh, we don't really go through hard times, but on our poor American minds, we think we do. And so, you know, if we went overseas and some of you went to the Philippines and seen some, have some of them lived in the Philippines, you would be so glad to come back to your poor little $9 an hour job. You really would. You would be, you would be. Uh, you know, I, I, I've told you before, and I'm sure that uh, I don't know if, if uh, Nilda knows. I don't know Raquel, I don't think, was in there. Yeah, no, Raquel wouldn't have been. Nilda might have been. There is a whole, a whole 
village of people that lived in the dump. They had houses. You, rem you remember that. It was in a Manila area. That they, they lived in the dump. You go by, and they had their shacks built, and probably 100, maybe 200 people that lived. Now, just what I could see. There may have been a lot more than that, uh, that lived in the dump. And, you know, people do what they have to to survive. And so we, so we, look, at, uh, we look at some of the things that we think that are so difficult, but yet we, we, we deal with it. Then all of a sudden we're through it, and we wonder, why did it have to be this way? Why did God do this? with me, to me, whatever you might want to think. Then we have to come back to thinking God's ways are above our ways and his, his thoughts above our thoughts. And sometimes what happens to you at 25 years old is not necessarily revealed to you till you're 65 years old. Don't ever think that God has just ignored you. Don't think that God has just given up on you. He died on the cross for you. And if you love him and you're willing to, to give yourself to his will, and his design, then there's going to be situations that occur that you don't necessarily like or understand, but if you'll go through them and keep the right attitude and a joyful spirit, you will come to a point where God will let you see and understand why. So his ways are above our ways. Paul, the apostle, recognized the perfection of the divine plan for human redemption, and he knew uh, it was centered in the cross. Christ, he told the Corinthian believers, is both the power of God and he is the wisdom of God. He is the wisdom of God. In 1 Corinthians 1.24, the extreme brutality of a crucifixion Offends if you are our natural sensibilities. Uh, another story again, I've, I've told before. I, I, because I've been pastor now 25 years, again, I have to go back and let you know that I'm not senile and that I'm telling you something that you've heard 40 times. Yes, I have told it and probably 40 times, but for those of you who haven't heard this, the rest of you just uh, take a little nap for the next uh, 30 seconds, okay? Um, and what reminded me of this is what you gave me. Uh, I, I, it may be on there. Um, Charles Mahaney was, was here years ago, and uh, he told of a vision that he had. And he said he, was, he had been in prayer, and he completely was out in this vision. And, he, and when I made the statement about the, the, the sensibilities of what happened to crucifixion, he said that God allowed him to see and hear the crucifixion. He said that, that he was, it was like he was there, and he said he could smell the smell of the animals. He, he said he, he could feel the heat. He said that, that he looked and he heard the, 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 the murmur of the people that were around. And he said his vision started at the base of the cross. And he could see the blood dripping down. And he said it got up and he could see the Lord's feet. And he could see the, the, the terrible wounds there. And he said the vision kept going up. And he said he could hear the noises. And he said going up and going up. And he could see the, the spear thrust in his side. And it kept, continued to go up. And he, could, he said it, it, it went to one hand and the other. And he said... I, he said, I, I knew the next thing I was going to see was going to be his face. And he said, I screamed in a vision and said, God, I don't want to see this. And he came out of it. But it came out of that, and, and that made such a change. You know, a lot of times you, uh, when it came, he's dead and gone now. But, you know, people wanted to hear his testimony. But this far, far superseded any testimony that anybody would ever have to understand and to know exactly what happened there and and just to, to to be feel like you were a part of that just seeing it 
And so it's it, it hard on our sensibilities. We don't really want to see this. In fact, uh, the Roman executioners, it is said in history, uh, said that before they ever could do an execution, that they would get drunk just to numb themselves. They would they'd heavy drink before performing this task. And, and three women named Mary were at the cross of Christ. And, and, and we have to wonder how they could have endured watching. Can you imagine? How could you endure watching something like this? But they did. In the days of, of the Lord's earthly life, a, a shameful stigma was attached to the cross. The Jews considered the person hanging on a cross as being cursed of God in Deuteronomy 21, 23, Galatians 3, 13 as well. It said only slaves, foreigners, and the lowest types of criminals were crucified under Roman law. And in Roman times, as a sign of public scorn, the soldiers often forced the condemned person to carry the wooden timber or at least the cross beam to the place of his own execution. Golgotha, which was a common site of crucifixions just outside Jerusalem, seemed to be far from being a place of mercy. It was a place of the most severe judgment. You think about it. The cross purchased mercy, but yet the place where he went was a terrible place. Golgotha, that's where they crucified, executed. And it was, of course, the term Golgotha means a skull. And its location reminds us that the sin offering under the Jewish law had to be carried without the camp, according to Leviticus 4.12. Wherefore, according to Hebrews 13.2, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. He could not be in Jerusalem. He had to suffer outside the gate because it was a sin offering. The perfect man, never sin in his life, could not even be executed within the, the town walls. They had to take him out at a terrible place because he was sin. Now, this I got in trouble years ago over making this statement, that Jesus became sin for us, but it's proof. 1 Corinthians, I believe, 19, I can take it. He became sin for us who knew no sin, that he felt what? Now, you, you follow me, and if you want to send this into my, the presbyter, you go ahead. I don't care. He felt what a homosexual feels. He felt it. He felt what a drunk, what a drug addict. He felt it because all the sin came on him. That's why it was such a terrible ordeal for him. He felt everything that we feel. And I know that that first thing I said, for some of you, just, we all have a hard trip, a problem with that. But it's still sin, folks. And he felt sin. He didn't commit sin. He felt sin. We don't like to go to some of these places. But Jesus did. If Jesus hadn't have been the perfect man, he could never have died for all of our... There would be no hope for the homosexual. There'd be no hope for the drug addict. There'd be no hope for the adulterer. I get so weary with people who, who don't... They don't put this in the right perspective. You know, they, they put this in a perspective that Jesus was nailed with a cross with a 16-penny nail. Had a spike that big around that they nailed through him. And the worst part of it all was not the pain. It was feeling what sin felt like. So this is, this is where he and what he suffered. 
According to Colossians 2.14, God has erased every note of indebtedness, the handwriting of ordinances that stood against us, nailing it to his cross. The term blotting out signifies a wiping off as a person might clean a blackboard. Because he felt that, he could just take our soul and take that eraser and just erase sin when we come to him. When we repent of our sins, take on his name and water baptism. Why, why wouldn't we want to put on Christ? Why wouldn't we want to wash away our sins, calling on the name of the one who felt and tasted every bad thing for us? All evidence of our past sins have been obliterated. The record of the charges against them is gone forever for those who choose to embrace the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. When the authorities crucified a criminal, they attached to the cross a list of his crimes. By his death, Jesus bore the full penalty of all of our sins. That's the reason they put up there the king of the Jews. That was the, that was the extent of his crimes. He didn't even call himself king of the Jews. But yet that was the extent of his crimes. They put it up above on the cross. The cross was a symbol of a complete self-denial, the ultimate sacrifice of our will. Individuals do not understand cross-bearing in modern culture as easily as they did in Christ's day. Individuals today are apt to think that we're bearing a cross when things don't go according to our plans. That's exactly right. A little bit of setback. We all feel that way. That's what cross-bearing is. But cross-bearing meant far more, far, far more than these things to the early disciples. They were well aware of the torturous death that each and every one of them could have faced. Peter was crucified upside down, and knowing what Jesus had gone through, he continued to preach this wonderful message that sets men free, and he knew that every day that he did it, he took the chance he took the chance of facing that same kind of death. But yet he continued. He knew that every day the cross was bearing over him. Every day. But yet he went. Do you realize, I don't know, I think that we have our stronger churches when we are persecuted. We have stronger churches overseas when they're persecuted. China right now is going through an unmerited revival, and they're all underground. Because they face, maybe not the death of a cross, but they face death. Every day, the cross of Jesus Christ exposes our selfish desires. It reveals the sinfulness of our, and our, our errant actions and thoughts. We see ourselves as never before in the light of what took place on the cross. Isaac Watts, and we know him as a songwriter, wrote these memorable words about the Lord's crucifixion when he said this, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. When I survey... The cross, when I survey that wondrous cross. The principle of the cross involves the death of self-interest. It demands willingness to sacrifice ourselves in an effort to please our Heavenly Father. It entails abandoning anything that would take precedence over God's will. It means identifying ourselves with Christ in his most agonizing time of suffering and shame. There is no higher standard for service than living in self-denial. If you don't get anything else out of this this morning, get this. It doesn't matter whether you agree with the church standard or not. If you live in self-denial, you're going to be a better person. 
If our self-denial only goes to the point of living for a standard, at least you're better for that. It should go further than that. Churches have to have standards. They have to have a, a standard to live by. Standards are fences that keep us safe. No, you may not go to hell for breaking one of them. And I'm not saying that you would, but on the other side of it, if you don't learn some saying no to yourself somewhere along the line, you're going to have problems. And if you don't teach it to your children, they're going to live in a constant state of problem. They don't learn. I mean, I, I, this, we're talking about self-denial. You know, you get up every morning, you go to work, and you don't like it, nobody does, and all you need to do is just say, one morning get up and say, I'm going to live on Obama bucks, and you don't have to worry about it anymore. <laughs> Haven't you seen Obama bucks? Got his face on it. Got a smile, got one tooth missing. <laughs> he says, what, me worry? <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, it's Obama bucks. But I'm saying you teach your children by the fact that you get up and you make that denial because you love them. You're, you're going to go out and you're going to do your best for them every day. They learn to do that by what they see as an example. Jesus gave us an example. And he wants us to live. And, and again, that is the highest standard for service is self-denial. This is living the crucified life. If we have the spirit of Christ dwelling within us, we should share his sense of dedication, compassion, and willingness to suffer for others. Paul wrote in Philippians 2.5, he said, Let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. And we should model our actions and thoughts after our Savior who humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Walking with Jesus must have been a series of, of shocking contrasts for the disciples. From climbing, you know, thinking of them in terms of like we think of us. And we, it's hard sometimes to put ourselves in the place of the disciples. And we think that, you know, they saw the wonderful miracles and everything that Jesus did, that that should somehow numb their sensibilities. But it, it didn't. It didn't. It's the same thing here. We can have a line of people up here, and we could see uh, we could see people have blinded eyes open, cancers fall off. We could see legs grow out. We could see all this, but you would still live in your flesh when you walked out that back door. And what you've seen up here may not necessarily stick with you as long as what you would like for it to, especially when somebody uh, got crosswise with you. And so they, they felt the same way. You know, you, you see them. They climb these, these heights of popularity, and, and, and then and they go through the, the thorny lowlands of rejection. That's what they endured. One high, one low. And shortly after feeding of the 5,000 and the revelation of himself as Christ to his disciples, Jesus declared, he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be slain and be raised the third day. In Luke 9, 22. And immediately, you can imagine, now, I don't know. I, I don't know if this happened exactly this way, but I can imagine Peter being impetuous the way he was, coming, turning to the Lord, and taking him by the hand. That, no, 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 no. Every one of these guys right here are as good as gold. But people that are not here right now, right here, have made the statement to me, and I've learned this. I had people that are not here who said, no matter what, I'll be behind you. Two days later, they were traveling down the road. You see what I'm saying? Peter had that kind of spirit. At the time, I'm mighty. I can be behind you. But when the devil started getting on his case, 
he quickly ran the other way. So you got to be careful what you say. So, you know, and Jesus just, you know, turned to him and said, no, you know, things are not going to, uh, they're not going to be this way, Peter. And, and, and moreover, Jesus stated to his father, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. I, I had a, I was teaching a Bible study one time to a, a denominal man and uh, he was a guy that absolutely, I had the hardest time teaching him a Bible study. He was like, you know, some people can't shut up. You ever seen, you know, you're trying to talk and he interrupts you and you lose your train of thought. And you're trying to out talk him and he's still talking. And uh, he was one of those. And I, uh, I kept going at it. I kept going. It was, I was younger then, had a, hard, a whole lot more patience. One thing about getting older, you lose patience. I always thought it was the opposite. Yeah, I thought as you got older that you had more patience. It's not true. It's not true. That's a wives' tale, at least for Robertson. It's a wives' tale. <clears throat> and so, so, you know, he made a statement. We got into this particular portion of the, of the Bible study. And, uh, and when, when I said he died daily, I said he died to his desires of saying, oh, I said, no, that's not the case at all. That's not what that means. I said, okay, what does it mean? He said it means that he faced death every day. And I said, yeah, he did face death every day. But it also means that he had to die to himself in order to face death. You understand that? If you knew that you were facing death every day, the first thing you want to do is go the opposite direction that death was. So you had to die to yourself in order to face death. Okay? And so, you know, he argued with me. I finally gave up letting him believe what he wanted. But uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 31 and when, when Peter said, I die daily, the Amplified Bible translates, he says, I face death every day and die to self. So it just says it there. The meaning of that scripture is, yes, I face death every day, but I also have to die to self. And clearly Paul spoke of dying out to self-interest and self-will. He was not exaggerating his case or being overly dramatic. The, 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 the persecutor became the persecuted. And after Paul met his, his Messiah on the Damascus Road, God commanded Ananias to go to his oppressor of the church. The Lord said, I will show him how great things he must suffer for my namesake in Acts 9, 16. Paul labored. Ananias had to die to self to go to Paul. Can you imagine? Ananias knew Paul is a guy who killed Christians. I mean, Paul had this machine that threw Christians in the air, and he pulled his shotgun up and shot them. You know, the clay Christian shoots. <laughs> Not too bad off there. You know, that's what we're made of, right? Clay, clay Christian shoots. I mean, he, and Ananias said, all right. God says to Ananias, he said, you're going to go and you're going to show him how great things he's got to suffer. Well, that part probably thrilled Ananias. I got to tell him he gets to suffer for a while. But the fact that he had to go to him and tell him he even had hope. So he had to die to himself. Paul labored and from that point fervently and suffered dreadfully. The apostle faced beatings and stonings. Look at, uh, look at 2 Corinthians 11, 24 through 27. 11, 24 through 27. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods, once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck, and night and a day I've been in the deep, journeyings often in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among the false brethren, and wearing his painfulness, and watching so often, and in hunger and thirst, and fastings often. Now that's bad. Look at all the perils he was in. Go to the next verse. And that saith the new covenant, he hath made the first. That's not one on one. Go on the next verse. No, no, wait a minute. Go back. I'm sorry. It was the next verse in Corinthians. I'm sorry. Go back to the one and go to the next verse. 
Did I mess you up? It was 1 Corinthians, it was a verse following the last one I just read. Okay, go to 28. But you see all the perils that he endured, and I'm making poor old... Besides those things that are without which cometh on me daily, the care of all the churches. So he took all these perils that he had to go through, but he made an own verse for taking care of a church. You see? I'll be honest with you. Yeah, all of them. He had a, he had a bunch of them on just one. He went from one to the other, straightening them out. One to the other, straightening them out, straightening them out. But the fact remains that he said, that's harder than all this other stuff I had to endure. Okay. The matter of cross-bearing is entirely up to every individual. Each must decide for himself whether or not to take up his cross. It is a personal and costly decision which entails a willingness to live for Christ, if need be, to die for Christ. In studying the history of the church from the time of the apostles to the present day, many pages are stained with blood. Many are stained with blood. There have been many times of severe persecution and many believers have faced imprisonment and martyrdom. A person's cross may be long-term and heavy, although many have felt the weight was too much to carry. Paul wrote in Romans 8, 17 that if we suffer with Christ, we will be glorified with him. For those who suffer with Christ, there's an incorruptible crown. Sometimes we think of that incorruptible crown when in, in, in reality we face that we're truly wearing a crown of thorns. Living life sometimes makes us forget that we do have an incorruptible crown to gain. Especially when you feel the needles of the thorns that are sticking in your head every day. And you know, that's, that's always been a great symbolism to me. Because, you know, you take Jesus was crucified on Golgotha, the place of the skull. He had a, a crown of thorns placed on his head. And we still crucify him in our minds. And still, it's the mind that gets that gets the pain. It's the head. It, it, it's not a matter of dealing with what we have to deal with in a physical level every day. It's a matter of how the devil attacks the mind. And, and it constantly, and sometimes you have to remember that whatever you're feeling in your mind, you need to take, take authority over it and know that God has already taken care of it and rebuke the spirit that comes against you and realize that you are going to gain an incorruptible crown one. Sometimes we wear the robe of service instead of the robe of righteousness. And regardless, if you're in leadership, you're sitting on a pew, you get tired, you get fatigued. Sometimes you have to step back, reevaluate. You know, it's not a matter of stepping back from God, but sometimes you just get weary of service all over and over and over again. Bible says that when the, 1 Peter 5, 4, when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. The precious blood of Jesus Christ did what nothing else in this world could do. And though many individuals on earth have often undervalued and even rejected it, God has placed high value upon it and accepted it in heaven. It did what the Mosaic law could never do. It did what ceremonies and sacrifices could never do. It did what the blood of bulls and goats failed to do. It did what all the Sabbaths and holy days in Jerusalem could never do. It became permanent. Powerfully, the writer of Hebrews 9 drew a contrast between the sacrifices 
offered under the law and the sacrifice made by the Son of God. The offering of bulls and goats in the tabernacle, he wrote, were only typical, a mere shadow of the redemptive work that was to come. The services of the, of the priests never were complete. These priests continued to make sacrifices on a daily basis, but it never was complete. Somehow, I believe that every priest knew, realized through the prophecies of the Old Testament that regardless of what he did, he was not going to ever see the fruit of what was happening. It was never going to be completed. It was, it, I, it was like some, some work you... I can't. I never worked in a factory. I can't imagine what it would be like to never see a completion. Now, maybe you know, maybe in your way of thinking, it would be different. But if I seen a line and that line was ever coming, that never did you whatever you were doing on that line never stopped. That you never felt well. I got twenty five hundred of them done today, but still, there's forty five hundred more coming. And next day, the next day, the next day, there never was an end. The priest had to feel this. There never was an end to what they were doing. I don't, I, I don't work well unless I can complete something. I, I can't. I, I just can't. And probably the worst thing in the world for me to do, I have to be a call of God to be a pastor because pastoring is never complete. You know, you get thinking, I'll get this guy straightened out right here. And, you know, the next day he's back, same old mess. You know, and, 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 and you know, it, it, you keep, and then occasionally you get some completions. You know, you see somebody go through his wilderness ordeal and he comes out better because all of us go through it. But you, you stop and think, I, I, sometimes at home, just so that I can do something complete, I, I want to go out and cut a tree down and cut it up just so that that tree is, is no longer there. Some people, you know, you, you're an old guy and you can't cut trees and you ask other people to come help you and they never make it. <laughs> Sorry, that was a little personal thing there. I had a little personal gig. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I'm going to tell the rest of the story how someone sitting behind me, not the guy that's a little heavier than the other, but the other one uh, never got the job done. But, you know, I got my son-in-law and, and went out there and in dangers of life and perils of the deep and perils of the tree. And oh, peril of, where's Jason? Is he not in here? Oh, he's back in there. That was so funny. I, I got to tell this. I had, to, I, had this, I had this tree. We put this, put to come along on it, put a snatch block on it to pull it over this direction. I said, now, Jason, I'm going to cut, because this tree was leaning this way, and I had to go this way. And I said, now, I'm going to cut, and you pull that come along tight. He had it all tight. And, I, and the rope was stretched across this little gully. Uh, and I was cutting. It wouldn't do anything. I said, get on that rope and jump up and down. <laughs> so he was doing this rope. Well, that tree popped. And I said, run, Jason, run. <laughs> I said, I thought I was going to be shy son-in-law there for a while. Missed him by 10 feet. We were all right. <laughs> That's why he did I wouldn't have yelled run to him. I would just, you know. <laughs> but completion, these poor priests, they never got anything done. But when Jesus died on the cross, it was finished. It was finished. It was over with. Now, it, when you begin to see it and understand it, the way into the holiest of holies was, was closed to the priesthood and excluded all but, but the high priest who entered once a year. Actually, the, the high priest entered twice a year. People don't, if you look in the scripture carefully, you'll see that. 
that he entered once for himself. He had to go in for himself because if he wasn't right to take it in for the rest of the nation of Israel, he would have died. So he had to go in first for himself. And, and they, they were, you know, they were excluded from, except for the high priest, from going into the holiest of all. And even, even then the high priest was made aware of his own sins. So the high priest every year was made aware of his own sins. Didn't have the sin bearer that we've got. He offered himself for the errors of the people, Hebrews 9, 7. The blood of animals could never permanently remove the guilty stains of sin. This would be done only through the sinless blood of the Lord Jesus. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, forever sat down on the right hand of God in Hebrews 10, 12. There is no need for further shedding of sacrificial blood. The price of redemption paid by our Savior on Calvary satisfied the Father's righteous demands for all eternity. It replaced the old covenant. Hebrews 8, 6 through 13 explains that God established a new covenant to replace that which was imperfect with the coming of the new and better dispensation. The old covenant had become obsolete. Look at uh, uh, Hebrews 8, 13. It'll come up. She had that up a little earlier. The writer used the word here in Hebrews, uh, or in Hebrews 8, 13, the word uh, paleo, which translate he hath made old. Now, he used, uh, in Strong's exhaustive concordance of the Bible, the Greek word means to make passively become worn out, declare obsolete. So what he was doing was he declared the old covenant obsolete. It was no good any longer. It no longer worked, never worked to begin with. All it did was push sins forward until the sinless blood of Jesus Christ, who tasted sin for every man, Tasted sin for every man whose perfect blood covered each and every one of us. When I go to repentance, the Bible speaks, and we can, that can be argued and argued and argued. When does the blood get applied? Well, I'll tell you how in Exodus it was applied. It was applied in three different places, on each side of the door and over the lintel, over the door. In a shape of a cross, it was, it was applied. And it was applied so the death angel would pass over the Israelites that had the blood applied. And regardless of what you feel, you can be wrong if you want. It takes three applications of the blood today in order for you to be saved. You get one application repentance. You get a second application in baptism in Jesus' name. And the third application comes when you receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost speaking in other tongues. It takes three applications. So he cleansed, the Savior cleansed the consciences of, of individual by his blood. Circumcision was no longer outward, according to Romans 2, 28 and 29, but an inward circumcision of the heart through water baptism in the name of Jesus. Look at that Colossians 2, 11 and 12. Colossians 2, 11 and 12. In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. So you are circumcised in the heart. It's the inward man. That's the reason Jesus died. That's the reason the Greeks couldn't accept it. They could only see the outward. The Jews could only see the outward. But Jesus said it's the inward man. It's what's inside of here. This thing we call a body is nothing but a glove over the real man. And it's not the circumcision of the outer man that matters. It's a circumcision of the heart, the cutting away of the old nature. That's when you go down and water baptism in Jesus' name. That's exactly what happens. It's exactly what happens. 
what the blood of, of Jesus Christ does. It signifies dying with Christ. I would be dif- it would be rather difficult to read the biblical account without realizing the tremendous, and this, this is, oh, this is factual if there ever was a fact, the tremendous hatred Christ faced during his trials and crucifixion. You realize how much hatred he had to face. The loathing of mankind for Jesus was livid and inspired by Satan himself. A whole band of soldiers gathered about the Lord. Matthew 27, 27. Viciously they scourged him and mercilessly they mocked him. Blood flowed freely on that momentous day when our Savior died. And some, some, some individuals may discredit the Lord's shed blood, but a believer only trusts in it for the salvation of his soul. While some counted the blood of the covenant an unholy thing, according to Hebrews 10, 29, the Christian sees it as the conclusion of his old life. He must die to pass sins through repentance, lay aside his old ways, and take up his cross and follow the Savior. And Paul wrote, Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans 6.11. It also provides pardon, remit sin. Over and over, the New Testament emphasizes the power of the blood of Christ to remit our sins. John ascribed the glory and dominion forever unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Paul wrote that it is, it is Christ to whom we have redemption through the blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. In Ephesians 1, 7, not only so, but Christ through his blood has been set forth as a propitiation. A propitiation is a meeting between God and man. So he set himself a, a, a meeting place between God and mankind, Romans 3.25. In the Old Testament, the golden mercy seat, the covering of the, over the Ark of the Covenant, typified this meeting place. And there the Almighty told Moses, I will meet with thee and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, Exodus 25.22. But the blood of Jesus Christ purchased a way for us to meet with God. You listen to me. Some of you occasionally in prayer, you get to that meeting place and in praise when this this church this morning, there was a lot of us that met with him. You could just feel the liberty and the freedom of the spirit that was going on in this place this morning as people worshiped and they loved God. I felt like there was, when I stand up here, I felt like a ton was lifted off me. It's all of a sudden, for no particular reason, it just, boom, God just lifted everything off. You felt like you're ready to fly. That's when you're meeting with God. And that is the greatest feeling in the world. There is nothing like that. But my friend, it comes when you realize just who exactly you are in Christ Jesus. I am a child of God. I have turned away from sin through repentance. I've taken his name in water baptism, washing away the old man. And I've got resurrection power through the infilling of the Holy Ghost. I spoke in tongues. The Spirit of God dwells within my heart. Praise God. You know, Jesus Christ performed a complete work on the cross that opens the door to every sinner. Jesus said, it is finished. And indeed, at the brink of death, having refused the sponge of vinegar. It's uh, interesting because um, it was uh, Matthew Henry. Henry that said that the offering of the sponge was the last indignity. The last indignity. Jesus, the sponge of vinegar, um, was a way of killing pain. Uh, there was, there was, it's not vinegar as you think of vinegar, uh, but it was a way of killing pain. And Jesus was going to feel pain for every man, all mankind. He was not going to take the easy way out. And he knew his suffering and shame finally were over. 
But more than that, Jesus also was declaring that he had fulfilled and completed the plan of God for the redemption of mankind. His precious life's blood purchased our eternal salvation. It provides redemption. God hath chosen the weak things. Let's, let's look at that for a moment. The weak things of the world that's going to confine things which are mighty, according to 1 Corinthians 1.27. There's a precedent in the in scriptures that uh, you could call call this a divine paradox. God deliberately has selected what appears to be weak and insignificant to put the strong and the much admired to shame. Although there's, there's many examples of this in the Old Testament, the pattern reaches an apex in the New Testament. Follow me. Could anything be more helpless than a newborn baby in a manger? Weak things. Could, could, could anything, could any, and, and, but, but let, me, let, me, let me finish that. A newborn babe in a manger, yet that newborn babe in a manger, that helpless child, confounded King Herod. So we see the weak things. He, confi- he confounded Herod with this, with this child. Is there anything weaker than a man dying in agony on a cross? Is there anything weaker than that? Yet our Lord's death has conquered the hearts of millions of people. A man, a man in his weakness, blood flowing out of him in a weakened state full of agony, hurt, pain. Not just just the fact it was physical, but the mental, the spiritual pain that he was feeling for what was going on. Yet through that weakness, millions of people have been liberated. Millions of people. Yet Christ's blood, the Bible says, has become more precious than silver and gold. Why has the Lord's blood become so valuable to us? You know, we cherish it because it is the price that purchased our redemption. It became ransom price paid for our souls. Revelation 5.9 says, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred, tongue, and people, and nation. God longs to transform our lives by the death, burial, and resurrection of his son. The Almighty has provided and presented us with a wonderful gospel message that will perform that transformation. There are some people in here this morning that you're not completely transformed. You've got part of it, but you've not made that complete effort yet. You, you're, you're never going to be whole. You're never going to feel right till that whole thing is done. I've got to take on that name in water baptism. I've got, I got to feel the resurrection power through the infilling of his spirit. And when that comes, I'm going to speak in another tongue as the spirit gives the utterance. There is nothing like feeling the Spirit coming into a person. When you begin to speak in that wonderful heavenly language, you will begin to feel something transform inside of you. When you come out of the water in water baptism, you're going to feel as clean as any person ever thought. In fact, most of the time, people come out of the water and they begin to speak in tongues because they're ready. Stand with me. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 responded to the gospel. 
And we too may repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And we can receive that wonderful gift. With our eyes closed, I feel really led. I don't do a whole lot of altar calls on Sunday morning. I am not opening this up to just anybody. Not that it's not always open. You understand what I'm saying. If the person needs to pray, they can pray. But particularly this morning, I'm opening this up to someone who is not completely transformed. You've not yet been baptized in Jesus' name. You've not yet received the infilling of the Spirit. And you know that you need to. And this, you know, is... There's not a lot of people are, you know, in, in classes and so forth. There's not a lot of us in here this morning. But let me open this altar to you and say that this morning I would love to baptize you in Jesus' name. I would pray with you and see this wonderful infilling of the Holy Ghost occur. See the transformation that can make you a new creature in Christ. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. Sometime in your life, you have to step out on your own without any prompting from anybody and say, God, I want everything that belongs to me. I don't want to take any shortcuts in my relationship with you. I don't want to try to cut corners because i got to make it to heaven. And if I'm going to make it to heaven, Lord, I, I've got to have it all. Jesus died. He, he shed his blood so that you can have hope. He shed his blood so that you could step out of this nasty, sin-cursed world into the kingdom of his dear son. Jesus is calling you now. Jesus is speaking to you. Jesus is convicting you. Jesus... <laughs> Oh, I feel it's so strong this morning. He shed his blood that you can have. Oh, please, don't let your pride hold you back in a pew. Just step down here. And if nothing else, if you step down here and you say, Brother Robertson, I need to be baptized in Jesus' name this morning. I need it. I need it. I have to have it. I know that Jesus shed his blood so that I can have it. And I, I may have received the Holy Ghost and I've repented, but I have yet to take on that name. And a third application of the blood is yet to occur. Would you just step out? I'm not going to make this lengthy, but I do know that you need to respond. And I have I, I've, I've felt conviction in this place many, many times. But this morning, there's a strong conviction again that, uh, I know it's something just a little different. Can't say it's any stronger, but just something a little different. I feel it so, so much. Would you step out? Would you step out? Would you just step out and, and make a decision that you want to make heaven your home one day? This, this, is, the, this is our theme this year is anticipating the sunset. And the sunset is coming so quickly, so quickly. God is coming. He's coming for a people that have made themselves ready. He's coming for a people that desire him to come. Would you come? Would you come? Lord bless you. Again, I'm not going to. A singer sing. Would you just step out with somebody and, and pray with them just a little while? Pray with one another for just a few minutes. And if you feel that you need to come, please.
please feel free. Step out and pray.